Good evening. The Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists announces their doomsday clock remains where it was, 100 seconds to midnight. Biden warns Russia about Ukraine, bitcoins, and climate change in New York. Should Mayor Adams take his pay in crypto? With these and other stories, I'm Paul Durienzo with the news for Thursday, January 20th, 2022. The House Committee investigating the U.S. Capitol insurrection are making their first public attempt to arrange an interview with a Trump family member. The committee sent a letter today requesting a meeting in February with Ivanka Trump, a White House advisor to her father. Representative Benny Thompson, a Democrat from Mississippi and chair of the committee, said Trump, Ivanka Trump was in direct contact with her father during key moments on January 6, 2021, when Trump supporters stormed the Capitol in an effort to halt the congressional certification of Joe Biden's presidential win. Besides the subpoenas issued this week, the committee had a victory yesterday when a Supreme Court uh, when the Supreme Court rejected a bid by Trump to block the release of White House records sought by lawmakers, the National Archives began to turn over the hundreds of pages of records to the nine-member committee almost immediately. They included presidential diaries, visitor logs, speech drafts, and handwritten notes dealing with the January with January six from Mark Meadows, the former chief of staff's files. The next phase of the investigation will include a series of public hearings in the coming months. And the United States Treasury Department levied new sanctions today against four Ukrainian officials, including two current members of parliament, the Ukraine's parliament. Secretary of State Antony Blinken said the four men were at the heart of a Kremlin effort begun in 2020 to degrade the ability of the Ukrainian state to independently function. The new sanctions were announced less than 24 hours after President Joe Biden warned Russian President Vladimir Putin that his country would pay a dear price in lives lost if they invade. Uh, I've been absolutely clear with President Putin. He has no misunderstanding. If any, any assembled Russian units move across the Ukrainian border, that is an invasion. But it will be met with severe and coordinated economic response that I've discussed in detail with our allies, as well as laid out very clearly for President Putin. But there is no doubt, let there be no doubt at all, that if Putin makes this choice, Russia will pay a heavy price. There's also not the only scenario we need to be prepared for. Russia has a long history of using measures other than overt military action to carry out aggression. And paramilitary tactics, so-called gray zone attacks, as and actions by Russian soldiers not wearing Russian uniforms. Remember when they moved into the Donbass, the little green men? They weren't, they, they were daily with uh, um, those uh, who were Russian sympathizers and uh, said that Russia had no, nobody in there. Well, that includes little green men in uniforms as well as cyber attack. We've, we have to be ready to respond to these as well in a decisive and united way with a range of tools at our disposal. The Ukrainian foreign minister said this morning that he's confident of our support and resolve, and he has a right to be. And as President Biden speaking about uh, what he expects will happen if Ukraine, according to the United States, tries to invade or enter uh, Ukraine, including through the use of what he called little green men. Some 100,000 Russian troops have massed near Ukraine's border. Russian officials are demanding written guarantees that NATO will not expand westward. Members of the alliance refuse to give that pledge. 
And the doomsday clock turns 75 this month, created by scientists who created the atomic bomb and frightened by the power to annihilate humanity that they had unleashed. It happened in 1949 with the first Soviet nuclear explosion that the clock was set at three minutes to midnight. Since the Trump administration pulled out of the Iran nuclear deal and they added climate change as another existential threat to humanity, the clock has been set at 100 seconds to midnight. Today marks this year's announcement with the minute hand still just 100 seconds before midnight. Today, the members of the Science and Security Board find the world to be no safer than it was last year at this time and therefore have decided to set the doomsday clock at 100 seconds to midnight. The doomsday clock is holding steady at 100 seconds to midnight. But steady is not good news. In fact, it reflects the judgment of the board that we are stuck in a perilous moment, one that brings neither stability nor security. In 2021, there were some positive developments in each of the areas of concern that the Science and Security Board reviews. However, these have not managed to outweigh the longer-term negative trends that continue to erode security. And that is Susan Squassoni of the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists, a professor of astrophysics at the University of Chicago, Dr. Robert Rosner. Pardon me, Dr. Robert Rosner was once director of the Argonne National Lab, a key element in the development of nuclear weapons. He participates with the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists. He says since Trump, things have gotten better, but they've also gotten worse. The folks from the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists did the right thing. They basically balanced the positives and negatives that happened over the past year. Some of the positives were that we have a a more rational attitude to some of our adversaries, including the Iranians. We're actually talking to our adversaries. We're talking to the Iranians. We're talking to the Russians. With any adversary, the most important thing is to actually have a discussion. There is definitely progress in the realm of climate. But of course, there are the negatives. The negatives are, for example, Glasgow wasn't a ringing success. Every day we hear more things about the aggressiveness of the Russians, vis-a-vis Ukraine, for example. Although we're talking to the Iranians, we're not seeing all that much progress. On balance, if we ask, have things changed either way, much better or much worse than last year? The answer is no, which is the reason, fundamentally, why we decided to leave it 100 seconds to midnight. This is where, talking about a pretty perilous time, one thing that's dramatically changed since the the clock was invented, is this looming threat of misinformation and disinformation. The fact that it's so difficult nowadays to have conversations that aren't polluted by outright distortions, either intentional or unintentional. And so it's in any kind of conversation, you always count on the person you're talking to to actually play things straight. And that's becoming more and more difficult. Right. So this is a... Does the Russian-Ukraine thing impact the 100 seconds to midnight? There have been threats to move missiles to each other's borders again. Yes. I don't think anyone seriously thinks that intentionally the Russians would lob nuclear missiles in our direction or vice versa, that we would do that. I, I, I think, you know, I, I think certainly one would hope that the Russians and the Americans and everybody else involved is rational enough not to start nuclear war. What we're concerned about is that during a time of stress, that accidents, miscalculations can happen. And that's what's so dangerous right now, is that it doesn't take much of a miscalculation 
to get the ball running for major conflict. And that's the real concern. The real concern is that things can get uh, get out of hand very quickly. And we have, you know, history tells us that what you might think are relatively minor events can lead to dramatic, dramatic consequences. In the 20th century, probably the the assassination of the Archduke Ferdinand by a Serbian nationalist led to millions and millions of deaths as a result of World War One. Who would have thought that one assassination would do that? But it did. Do the Iranians have an argument in the sense of, well, you guys pulled out, so uh, maybe we should delay things until we're a lot closer to that point where we could make well, rich uranium? That's a possibility, but I, the question that you have to ask yourself is, what reasons do the Iranians have for trusting the United States? The evidence from their perspective is they signed an agreement when Obama was president, and when the next president came in, Trump, he simply abrogated the agreement. Just the fact that the United States signed something doesn't mean that we actually will stick to it. We sign agreements that we then abrogate unilaterally. So that's a concern. I asked this to a government person, the same question. They looked right. at me and bit back, like, we're a democracy. They'll have to get used to dealing with a democracy, you know, making it, turning it around <laughs> as an attack on Iran. If you expect to have a reasonable relations with other people, I think there's an expectation that you're treated fairly. The idea that democracies are now labeled as untrustworthy in terms of treaties and agreements, that's a pretty damning, that's a damning statement about democracies. I don't think you want that to be true. And if you look at the, in the past, once the United States has signed agreements, it's stuck to them. But it didn't in that case. So that was a major, 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 major reversal of a long-held tradition by the United States. And that was on Trump. Dr. Robert Rosner is professor of astrophysics at the University of Chicago. He participates with the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists. Meanwhile, on Capitol Hill, senators last night faced off in an emotional, raw debate on voting legislation that Democrats and civil rights leaders say is vital, vital for protecting democracy. Senator Bernie Sanders says growing up, he didn't know that politics would be about trying to prevent people from voting just because they might vote against you. He says our job should be to increase voter turnout, but the important voter legislation failed because of the filibuster. According to Sanders, without the filibuster, a majority rule would prevail, which is what a democratic society is all about. Changing the Senate rules, a radical idea. Oh, my God. First time in history we're about to do it. Never been done before. Oh, well, really not quite. No. As every member of the Senate knows, the rules get changed on a fairly regular basis. Nothing radical about it. Just a few months ago, in order to raise the debt ceiling and prevent our government from defaulting on its loans, the rules were changed so that a 50-vote majority would prevail. We changed the rules appropriately. And we prevented a default and a massive worldwide depression. Just a few years ago, my Republican colleagues who were so adamantly against changing rules, well, my goodness, they changed the Senate rules to allow 50 votes to confirm the president's nominees to the Supreme Court. Oh, my goodness, how shocking. And they got three conservative Supreme Court 
justices as a result. Rules get changed around here all of the time. And maybe, just maybe, we might want to change the rules in order to save American democracy. Senator Bernie Sanders, Georgia Senator Raphael Warnock, says we must face up to the fact that January 6th insurrection really did happen. But he says the thing is, January 5th also really happened. There's a woman in Cobb County named Irish. She says she's tried repeatedly over the past 10 years to vote, but could not because of long lines and changing polling locations. People playing games. She said that she has often had to decide if she will work or vote. Another woman, Verona, from Cobb County, says that she waited in line for eight hours in the rain at her local library. Eight hours to vote. I run into constituents all the time who tell me that they waited for hours to vote for me. I'm honored that they vote, voted for me, but I'm sad they, that they should have to wait for eight hours. A student in Atlanta named Isabella says that she and many of her friends who could not vote in the November 2020 election because they did not want to skip class to stand in line. Why are state leaders in Georgia behaving as if giving voters these awful choices is normal or that voters like these Georgians don't exist? Those are the facts of the laws that are being passed in Georgia and across our nation. And so here's the question tonight. America, are we January 5th or are we January 6th? Are we going to give in to the forces that seek to divide us by gerrymandering us, suppressing us, and subverting the voices of some of us in pursuit of power at any cost? Or are we going to live up to that grand American covenant? E pluribus unum. Out of many. One. I choose what Dr. King called beloved community. I choose America. I choose a nation that embraces all of us. And that's Senator Raphael Warnock. The attempt by Democrats to change filibuster rules in order to pass the voting bill failed with opposition from Democratic Senators Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema. The vote was 52 to 48, with the two joining all GOP senators. After the vote failed, there was a loud round of applause from Republicans. And you're listening to the news on WBAI New York. I'm Paul Durienzo. Closer to home, New York City Mayor Eric Adams today said his first paycheck to arrive on Friday will automatically be converted into cryptocurrency via Coinbase Global Incorporated. The salary will be converted to Ethereum and Bitcoin, the statement added. The mayor last year said he would take his first three paychecks in Bitcoin and signaled his intention to make this his city the center of the cryptocurrency industry. Adams said in a statement, New York is the center of the world and we want it to be the center of cryptocurrency and other financial innovations. 
But upstate environmental environmentalists with the group Seneca Lake Guardian say Adams is dead wrong on Bitcoin, that the process of mining Bitcoins adds to pollution and climate change. Yvonne Taylor is vice president of the group. Bitcoin mining is going to cost New York businesses and individuals millions more on their energy bills. It's going to poison our our water and our air, undermine all of our climate goals and seriously hurt local economies like the wine producing region in the Finger Lakes where I live. Already we're experiencing many of the real life consequences of Bitcoin mining here in the heart of wine country in the Finger Lakes region because after Bitcoin was banned in China and other countries. Outside speculators are flocking to New York, where it's pretty much like the Wild West. There's no oversight or regulation of this industry. These guys are exploiting our natural resources to the detriment of local businesses and our already pandemic-depressed tourism industry. They're hurting our health and the planet because Bitcoin mining is extremely energy intensive. Globally, it guzzles about the same amount of energy every day as the entire country of Argentina. Energy use has grown 320% in the last five years, and New York currently hosts the majority of it in the U.S. with 20% of the country's Bitcoin mining. And it's the mayor who said that he wants to make the city the center of the cryptocurrency industry. Has always been uh, known as the the financial hub and a leader on the financial industry in the world, really. And there's nothing wrong with that. Our we're not against technology and cryptocurrency and moving toward the future. But everything we do in New York has to be framed in the context of climate as well. New York can lead both on climate and on cryptocurrency by not utilizing Bitcoin, which is extremely energy intensive. How directly does Bitcoin mining affect where you are right now? The facility here used to be a coal-fired power plant. It was shut down, so therefore it was producing no emissions for several years. It was reopened and transitioned to burn fracked gas, originally only to provide power to the public during times of high demand, but then began operating 24 hours a day, seven days a week to mine Bitcoin. Just when they installed 7,900 machines originally, their air emissions increased tenfold. They're now running over 15,000 machines. They're permitted to suck 139 million gallons of our drinking water out of Seneca Lake every day. Seneca Lake is a drinking water resource for 100,000 people. And then they're dumping it back into Seneca Lake at temperatures up to 108 degrees Fahrenheit. Trout are stressed at temperatures over 70 degrees. And we know that warm water is a contributing factor to harmful algal blooms, which we already have a problem with here. And this hot water discharge will not help. Why so does a Bitcoin need electricity? Nobody, it's not obvious to everybody. In order to be profitable to mine Bitcoin, you have to have thousands and thousands of complex computers running constantly and that requires an incredible amount of energy it's kind of brilliant if you're a crypto bro to to buy your own power plant to generate your power to mine bitcoin but for those of us who here in the finger lakes rely 
for our livelihoods on our clean air and water. They're a predatory corporation exploiting our natural resources. I liken it to purchasing a 1970s inefficient refrigerator instead of an Energy Star rated one. I mean, there's other forms of crypto that use far less energy. And so, you know, let's let's be a leader both on climate and embrace cryptocurrency, but not proof of work crypto like Bitcoin to produce crypto without destroying the planet and our jobs. Yvonne Taylor is vice president of Seneca Lake Guardian. Seneca Lake Guardian is urging Governor Hochul to place a moratorium on proof-of-work crypto mining with dozens of environmental organizations and the Stop Proof-of-Work Crypto Coalition, including Earth Justice, NYPIRG, Sierra Club, and Food and Water Watch. And also in New York City, the MTA has completed a feasibility study for a proposed mass transit line that would link Brooklyn and Queens directly. Governor Kathy Hochul announced that today. The study for the line called the Interborough Express didn't determine whether it would be a bus line or a rail line that would run on existing freight tracks that stretch from southwest Brooklyn to central Queens. The 14-mile line would run from the bottom of the Brooklyn Army Terminal in Bay Ridge up to Jackson Heights in Queens with connections to 17 subway lines as well as the Long Island Railroad. More than 900,000 people will live within half a mile of the line, a majority of whom are non-white. The feasibility study didn't include any estimated costs or completion dates. The heavy rail, light rail, and bus scenarios were studied in conjunction with creating a freight rail corridor alongside the passenger trains, a long-held goal of Representative Jerry Nadler, who represented parts, who represents parts of Brooklyn where the line would pass through. Nadler says it's time to link New York City to the nation's frail, uh, freight rail network. The Harbor freight, Rail Freight Project is designed to remedy the fact that New York City is the only major city in the world that is not directly connected to its country's national freight system, national freight rail system. Without this key rail link, more than one billion tons of freight move through the greater New York region each year, primarily by truck. With truck congestion adding an estimated two and a half billion dollars annually to the cost of delivering goods to consumers and businesses. Trucks transport about 90% of the freight, while rail handles only 2 to 3%, with most freight arriving by rail at points west of New York and relying on trucks to reach their final destinations. It costs as much to move goods from New Jersey to Manhattan as it does to move them 500 miles or more in some other areas of the United States. And that's Representative Jerry Nadler. The study projects that the Interborough Express would ferry 10,000 riders from Queens to Brooklyn daily with 6,000 riders going the other direction. Queensboro President Donovan Richards says it's beyond time for a way to get from Brooklyn to Queens and back without passing through the congestion of Manhattan. He also said the best food is at the Jackson Heights hub of the proposed link. By transforming this existing freight line connecting Bay Ridge and Jackson Heights, if you like to eat, you want to get to Jackson Heights, into a public transit option, we can connect now thousands of families to new economic opportunities in each borough, all while dramatically cutting commute times. And I often joke sometimes, and it's not really a joke, on some days trying to get into Queens from to Brooklyn to Manhattan, uh, it could seem easier to get to Florida by plane than Manhattan or Brooklyn by train. No longer will you have to take the subway all the way into Manhattan, however. 
just to get to Brooklyn or Queens. No longer will you have to transfer from one bus to the next bus to get to Brooklyn. We're talking about a single 40-minute ride from end to end, and that is a true game-changer for thousands of people on either side of the Queens or Brooklyn border. Queensborough President Donovan Richards, but Brooklyn Borough President Antonio Reynoso was having none of it. Brooklyn is the best, he said, but he agrees it's time for a rail link. One thing that Donovan and I will agree on is that the best borough in New York City is not Manhattan. And that's one thing that we could agree on. Uh, but um, Donovan, my brother, I can't tell you folks that look like us, that are raised the way we were raised or um, that come from the circumstances that we come from, very rarely hold seats in offices like we, like this one here. And to be able to come to Brooklyn to talk about a transportation project that is looking out for the interests of people that look like us and that grew up the way we did, as opposed to trying to connect us to Manhattan, where our economic development opportunities and growth really are starting to change. The dynamics of how we move around this city are starting to change. And if we want to talk about real economic development and growth, then we have to talk about Brooklyn and Queens. Brooklyn Borough President Antonio Reynoso. In a statement, Mayor Eric Adams said he supported the project, which he said would provide greater connectivity for New Yorkers living in transit deserts, as well as much-needed economic development. The Port Authority is still evaluating the proposal for a new freight line tunnel stretching from Bayonne, New Jersey, to the Brooklyn Army Terminal. The tunnel, Nadler said, would reduce the growing strain of freight trucks on city roads, as well as finally connect the city to the nation's freight rail system. And that's some of the news for Thursday, January 20th, 2021. The news produced with Linda Perry, our engineer is Richie Johnson. From New York City, I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening.